Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia spoke to the novelist Jeremy Gavron. He was incredibly interesting about his most recent book called Felix Culper, which uh, I won't ruin the episode for you, but it's kind of stitched together from the lines from lots of different very famous books. And he also wrote a very personal book called A Woman on the Edge of Time about his mother. incredibly open and honest about his career as a writer and also about his relationships with agents, editors and indeed um, his own mother. So one of an increasing number of fiction writers we've had on the show and a really interesting episode. Thank you very much for having me in your home, Jeremy. Um, I would first of all like to ask you about your sort of introduction into writing and, and how you you started writing. You, you didn't start out as um, a novelist as you are now. No, although that was always the idea um, for me. It was ever since I was really a, a boy, a small boy, I wanted to write, and um, and I, my plan was always at university that as soon as I finished university I would go off to a, a garret in Paris and write my first novel except when I got to my sort of final term I realised that uh, I didn't know how to write and I didn't have anything to write What did you study at university? English English uh, so And that didn't provide you with the answers? Well, it, it, it provided me lots of inspiration but mm. I, um, but not to, 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 at that point to be a writer and, and I actually think that most people don't really fiction is something that comes to you later Mm. Um, I think I think very few good novels are written before the age of thirty. So I then um, it was my grandfather actually, who was a writer and a journalist, um, suggested that I do journalism, and so I applied for journalism schools, and I went to the states um, to a journalism school in New York, mm-hmm. and then so I spent my thirty my twenties as a journalist. And did you enjoy it? Did you find it sort of useful in any way? Yeah, no, I enjoyed it hugely. I mean, I was, I was, it was a sort of, I was incredibly lucky. Um, I, I sort of was entering journalism just at the time when journalism was changing. Um, Murdoch's um, breaking of the unions at Wapping had opened things up. The independence started, um, and I, in fact, I first, my first job was at the Economist. Um, I was there for a year and a half. What did you specialise in while you were there? Well, I was on the business pages, mm-hmm. which is where most young, the, the Economist. Um, takes interns I don't know if they still do um back in my day they would take every three months they would take an intern and mm-hmm. oft, often they would then hire them always on pretty usually onto the business pages um, but that wasn't really my thing business um but there were just lot at that point lots of jobs going around in journalism and very different from today and new newspapers starting and um and then the the telegraph um which obviously wasn't my politics but uh the telegraph had, had basically its its readers were dying mm. and it wasn't getting any new younger readers so this had changed hands Conrad Black had bought the Telegraph and this is I'm talking about the, the, the mid 1980s and and appointed Max Hastings as, as editor and Andrew Knight who'd been the editor of The Economist as um, as as managing director of, of, of Telegraph newspapers and their idea was to bring in younger readers and to hire younger journalists so I got a call from Max Hastings' secretary, and I'd been working at The Economist then for about a year and a half, saying, would I come and see him? So I went to see Max Hastings in, in uh, I can't remember what the building was, it was one of those big buildings at, at, um, at Canary Wharf, mm. uh, or in the Docklands. And he was in this huge office, um, the, size, the size of this whole ground floor of, of the house <laughs> we're in at the moment. And um, he had a 
large desk that was pretty much the size of this room and he sat with his feet up and he's about six foot six and he sat with his feet up on this desk and a cigar smoking a cigar and he talked to me for about an hour about his experiences as a young journalist I really didn't say a word and at the end of it he said I like you will you come and work with us <laughs> and I said um, good listening I said well what what would you like me to do he said well what do you want to do and I said completely sort of out of nowhere always wanted to go to Africa. He said, good idea. And that was it. I was hired age 24 as Africa correspondent of the Telegraph, never having been to Africa, never <laughs> having worked on a daily newspaper. Uh, and it was, I was like, um, I was like boot in scoop. I mean, literally, that's, that's who I was. <laughs> so, so what was your first step? Having, you know, off the cuff decided that your, your deepest desire was to go to, to Africa. What was your first step? Well, I, I had to finish out my time at The Economist. Uh, and then I flew out first. The, the idea was that I was going to go to Nairobi and, mm-hmm. and cover the, the main part of the continent, Black Africa, as, as it was known. Then. And but I, they sent me first to South Africa for a few months, and they had a, a really lovely stringer there who'd been working for them for twenty years, uh, who sort of took took me under his wing and taught me a bit about how to be a journalist, most of which was about going to the the, the bar and spending all day at the bar and <laughs> getting the news that way. Uh, so I spent a few months there, and then I moved up to Nairobi. And by that point, I'd sort of picked up enough. Um, I'd had to learn quickly, picked mm. up enough to be able to kind of manage myself. What was the sort of the business of of being, um, well, you know, a, a foreign correspondent like in 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 those days? I mean, you said you learned pretty quickly in South Africa, but how did you apply that on the on the ground? Well, it was it was I think very very different from how it is now. Partly because you. you communications. Firstly, communications were very different, so there was no mobile phones. Um, satellite phones were just beginning to come in, so the sort of BBC crews would have satellite phones, but nobody else. And BBC crews were still sending film back, going to the airport, finding someone who was going on the plane, saying, please take this back to London, someone will meet you off the plane. Uh, so you, if you disappeared off into the bush or something for a week, that was it. You were off into the bush and they, the, the foreign desk couldn't get you, which was wonderful. I mean, I can't imagine how awful it is now that you could be got at all times of day or night. And really, as, as, as I sort of worked out, the, the, the basic rules were you, wherever you went. And, and, and in Africa, you were just going from country to country often, um, working on stories that were, were not big news stories. And your first stop was always to go and find an aid agency or an embassy to go and sort of brief you on what was going on. So that, that was sort of, I guess, the, the basic information that I learned. Talk to the taxi drivers, go to the market. Um, and then I started sort of getting a more sophisticated understanding of where to get more interesting stories. But I, I remember the, the, I had the first laptop I had that the Telegraph gave me was um, had it, it had, didn't have a flip up lid it just and it had four lines of print you could see on the screen and I think the maximum memory it could hold um, in a document was about about a thousand words um, and then I finally got a second one which actually had a flip up lid with a larger screen that was maybe about ten lines deep and in order to send your story you had to connect. The, the laptop with, with a, a wire and a pair of crocodile clips. You had to unscrew the telephone box on the, on the wall and attach the crocodile clips to the telephone box. And usually you're in a hotel. So we, we, as journalists, we would train the um, receptionists at the hotels to make what, we, what were known as computer calls. So you'd, say, you'd call up and you'd say, I need a computer call. You'd, you'd, and then they, they basically would call the certain number and know that when they got a strange noise, they would just put you through, at which point you'd press a button on the computer and it would the story would go down if you were lucky 
through the crocodile clip. So I was still often having to send stories by calling the copy tasters. Now, do you, have you heard that phrase, copy I, tasters? I have, yeah, but... I'd love to. I'd love you to explain well, the, how the, it works. Well, the copy tasters we, we, we were generally a, a room full of um, elderly ladies back at the Telegraph, whose job was to type up copy dictated down the phone from from journalists calling from around England or from wherever in the field. And so that's what you would do. You would call up the copy tasters and dictate your your copy down the line. Uh, very, very different. Uh, so, how long were you doing that for? I spent two and a bit years in Africa and then I was then sent to India for another couple of years and then I came back to London uh, I wanted to write I'd always wanting to write books and so mm-hmm. I had an, 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 an I was actually asked by an agent a literary agent called me up and asked me I'd written a story uh, in the newspaper about the death of a, a young woman in a, a national park in Kenya a young English woman uh, and I'd written a news story about it or a feature about it and a a literary agent called up and said would you be interested in writing a book about this and it wasn't really what I'd had in mind as a book but um, I I, felt like a good start so I accepted that I asked for a few months off from the newspaper I wrote this book and then I had another idea for a book I did want to write about Africa so I pitched that and got a contract so I wrote that I asked for a bit more time off from the newspaper and I wrote that and then the Telegraph was saying, well, when are you going to come back? And I said, well, actually, now I think I'm going to quit. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm a writer now. Mm. Um, and I'm going to write my novel, um, which wasn't so easy. <laughs> so I spent a few years um, before the, the novel came. And then I ended up then write, working in a prison for a couple of years and doing other things to keep me, to keep me going. Are you um, still working with that same literary agent who sort of first called you up? And Can you talk a little bit more about the mechanics of of being, you know, of having someone contact you and, 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 and how that relationship worked? I had actually met her. I think I'd met this literary agent. I'd gone to see her. She was someone, another journalist literary agent, and I'd gone to see her, and so I had met her once. Um, I'm not with her now. Uh, she sold my first two non-fiction books. She sold my first novel. Uh, then my second novel, I sent her... Um, I'd written it and I sent it to her and it came back in an, an, an envelope that was falling apart um, the manuscript with no phone call no invitation to go and see her she'd been my agent through three books and simply a letter saying um, I don't get this I've given it to everyone else in the office no one gets this um, really sorry uh, which I was very shocked about Yeah, and I don't think it's normal practice uh, and, and this is an agent who I think many people have good relationships. I thought I had a good relationship mm. with, but um, and this is not a story really that I've ever really talked about before. But um, long, ago, you know, I'm not naming her, and it's long ago now. But I was, I was, I was quite shocked and and devastated mm. as well. And it was a novel, a novel that I'd worked on for a long time, put a lot of effort into, really believed in, and fortunately, um, I had. Uh, my editor at Penguin, who published my first novel several years earlier, had left Penguin and become an agent herself. Um, I hadn't spoken to her. I'd just heard this. I hadn't spoken to her. So I called her up in sort of despair, and I said, rescue me, basically. And she said, "Okay, send me the the novel. And I had a couple of weeks to wait, and eventually I got a phone call from her saying, yes, I'll take this on. And the novel ended up winning a prize, um, the Encore Award. It's not the biggest prize, but it was still... It felt like um, it was a relief mm. and got some good reviews. And so it got me going again. 
Did you ever have kind of a, a formal splitting with that first agent or was that letter enough for you to say, okay, I'm not going to just shelve this project and work on something else. I'm actually just going to sever the relationship. Well, she didn't say, come in and have lunch and let's mm. talk about it or, or this one doesn't work, but I believe in you. She simply sent it back. As I said, it arrived, not, not her fault, but it arrived in an envelope that was falling apart. The manuscript was sort of coming out of it. And this, this letter, which told me that not only she had disliked it, but everyone in her office had disliked it. And I never called her again. Mm. I just called up my old editor I did once meet her um, at a, a book launch and we spoke in, in a friendly way. I didn't mention um, anything. Do you think that that novel got that response because the power dynamic was different in the, in the first instance since she had asked you to write a particular book and it sort of been to order or was this, was this more experimental perhaps than the work you've been doing before? Yeah, I think it was more that... Um, I don't think it was because of, of her asking me to write the initial book. I think she was happy for me then to come up with my own ideas. And, um, I mean, you know, the, the books I'd written hadn't sold huge mm. amounts. Um, they'd got reasonable critical response, but, they, you know, she hadn't really made any money out of me. So mm. I, I don't know whether that was part of the... Sorry, that's the cat. Uh, <laughs> I did warn you. Um, <laughs> I, I, it was, it was, I think it was because it was experimental and I think she just didn't get it. Mm. Um, and it that was, was a sympathetic meow. <laughs> yeah, yes, very sympathetic. It was my second novel. It was a book called The Book of Israel mm. and it was a, a story based partly on my family history. I found some documents uh, and it was it covered a Jewish family over 100 years sort of migrating from Lithuania to England to South Africa back to England. And... And I tried to write it initially. I sort of tried to see if I could write it as a more com- as a conventional narrative, and it mm. didn't work. So eventually, I I wrote it entirely in in, in a mixture of other pe- of voices, the voices mm. of the characters. It was there was no narrative presence, or obvious. Obviously, there was my presence, but there was no obvious narrative presence. There was no narrator, narrative voice. It was written entirely in the voices of characters, or in things like. Um, Newspaper cuttings, imaginary newspaper cuttings, or some real newspaper cuttings, things like that. Um, letters, imaginary letters, uh, halves, one side of conversations. And I think she just didn't, it didn't, she didn't like it. Mm. That's a device that you've um, sort of pushed further, I guess, in your most um, recent novel that we'll discuss a little bit later. But I also want to talk to you about um, your, your book, um, A Woman on the Edge of, of Time, which was sort of six years in the writing could you talk a little bit you know explain what that book is is about well my mother died when I was four years old she committed suicide and my father really decided that the best way to deal with that was to try and forget about her so we didn't talk about her she he put away most of her possessions he gave away or threw away and her papers and he he, the, the things he did keep, a box of photographs, um, he hid away. Uh, the only thing actually that was kept was she'd written a book called The Captive Wife, which was an early sort of work of feminist sociology, and that was up on a high shelf. And other than that, uh, there was really no sign of her in the house. And that I grew up in, so with her not knowing about her, um, or knowing very little, my grandmother was the one person who would tell me a few stories, um, but not knowing very much about her, not knowing why she'd killed herself. Um, and never really speaking about her. 
Um, and you didn't know for a long time that she had killed herself. Well, I, he told me at 16. Mm. The one conversation I had with her between the age of four and in my 40s with her really was, was that. At 16, he took me for a drive in his car so he didn't have to look at me while he told me. And he told me that she, you know, he was devastated. He'd adored her. Mm. And, and I think he was just, you know, utterly devastated by, by the whole thing. And he told me a very basic version of the story of, of what had happened, that she'd fallen in love with a colleague she was teaching at Wansey College of Art at the time. And she'd fallen in love with a colleague who'd rejected her and she'd killed herself. And that was all he told me. And, and I, as children do, I bought into the taboo. I didn't talk about her. Um, I remember I did, I, want, I, I, I broke up with a girl, I was breaking up with a girlfriend at university and I used this story that I'd never told anybody, that my mother had killed herself as a sort of emotional weapon in the, mm. in the breakup. And, and then I, after that, I, I was a bit more honest about it. I would tell people very occasionally. But I still, and, I, and as I grew older and I became a journalist, I found little bits more about her. I clearing out my grandparents' house, I found some documents, I found a newspaper article telling me about, uh, from her, of her inquest, a report of her inquest. I found, a, um, I found an, an envelope, which was her suicide note, scrawled on a little white envelope. These were in my grandfather's papers. But I still didn't know that much about her, and I didn't really make much attempt to find out more about her until my brother, her other son, died suddenly of a heart attack when he was 46 and I was 43. And I was utterly thrown by that. Um, not just by my brother's death, which was, would have been enough to do so, but because it raised somehow, it, 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 like, un, un, it, was like, it was like when an earthquake um, reveals something long buried. That's what it felt like. And I felt a kind of grief welling up from deep inside me because I'd never been able to grieve. My mother. There was no funeral. We never spoke about her. Um, so I was for two or three years. I was in in a state of limbo. Really, I didn't know what to do with myself. I I published my last novel. My previous novel, her previous book, which was my last novel before the current one, had been published the week my brother died. So that was sort of you know my every time I even thought about writing a novel, I felt sick. Mm. The idea, you know, that all stories led to one end. It felt like to me, which of course they do, but. Um, but it felt very, very present to me at that situ- at that time. And, and slowly I, I began to realise that in order to get myself out of this hole that I was in, this emotional, psychological hole, so I had to address what had put me there, mm. um, which, was, which, was, which was my family situation, my brother, my mother. And I began asking questions about my mother for the first time in my life, in my in my 40s. Did you make the decision that you were going to write this as a book that would be published or did you just start asking questions and writing it as a way to get yourself through a, a sort of, you know, writing limbo? Well, actually, the first thing I did, um, I should go back to that, was I wrote, I wrote, I, I suddenly, I decided to write an article for the newspaper, for a newspaper for The Guardian, I wrote. I, I was reading, leafing through, I think it was the Evening Standard and I saw an article about um, the son of Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath who'd committed suicide. And, and the, the article said several things that were identical to my own experience. And so I, I just decided I'm going to write something. So I called up The Guardian and I basically insisted that they take an article and I wrote it within, in a day, having not been able to write anything for two years, and sent it to them and that was published. So that sort of broke the taboo initially. Mm. And then when I began asking questions, I did have the idea of a book in my mind from, from pretty early on. 
but I wasn't at all sure about it. It was each step. It was a long process of sort of. It was like if, if the taboo was a wall, I had to do it. Mm. I had to take it down brick by brick. And how did you go about gathering information, given that there had been this sort of very long period of, of silence, and you know the, the case was sort of you know was very cold. Well, I really didn't know. I had very little idea of where to start. I started. I had two basic ideas. One was a a, a neighbour who'd lived next door to us when my mother was still alive, who was a, a, a woman a few years older than me, who I'd, we'd, the family was, I was still in contact with, and who I thought might give a sort of child's eye view of her, um, but who would remember her, because I didn't remember I was four, but this, mm. this person was maybe would have been nine or ten, eleven mm-hmm. maybe. And so I called her up, and I went to see her. And I also knew my grandmother had talked to me about a pair of um, sisters who had been my mother's close friends when they were children. She would tell me, she told me a few stories, funny stories about them. And one of the, I'd met one of these sisters. So I initially tried to contact her, but I discovered that she was very ill. Um, So I didn't call her and I contacted the other sister and I went to see her. And that's where I began. And and they then suggested other people for me to talk to. And that, it went from there. And I had to do a lot of detective work. So having been a journalist was really useful. I, I, discovered she my mother had been went after school at 16 had gone to rada to train to be an actress so i went to to rada and in their archives archives i found a file of hers with letters that she'd written and application forms Um, i found another file at bedford college where she'd done um, her undergraduate degree and her phd and i i went called up her school that she'd gone to and i got lists of names and i called people up and I just, you know, once you got going, it, it became easier and easier because one person would pass you to another person. So once you found one person who'd been at university with her, you found a whole lot. One person who'd been at school with her, you found a whole lot. Mm. One person who'd been a student of hers at Hornsey or a colleague of hers at Hornsey College of Art, where she'd taught on the general studies um, department. So it, it just grew and grew. And then slowly documents, I began to track down documents of various kinds. Um, I eventually got a, a whole batch of letters that my mother had written which was really the first time I had any sense of her voice. Because I had her book, but it was a sociology book. Mm. Um, I had no... Though I had cine films of hers that, that hadn't been thrown away, but they were silent. Um, and so this, these, these letters, where I went, went to pick them up, and it, was a, it took me a long time to get these letters after I knew of their existence, several years. And when I finally got hold of them, I, I brought them home on the tube. I'd gone to summer a few stops away from where I live and I remember just sitting on the train reading them and forgetting where I was forgetting the stop and tears pouring down my face How did you you know, once you uncovered this wealth of material and of course it's incredibly personal how did you go about organising it and um, telling a narrative uh, you know, organising it into a narrative that would appeal to readers and kind of an, an audience um, and, and imagining your audience as well but it was re- that was really difficult I, I struggled with it for several years I would send in I, I remember writing a first draft and giving it to my my very lovely current agent um, who said to me look this is a great story and I'm fascinated by it but you haven't written a book yet and I was really writing it for myself at that point I was putting you know, every detail meant something to me mm. and I had to to, to slowly Trans sort of mutate or alchemize from from writing something which was very personal for me until to thinking about how to write something for for the audience and also I, I 
I don't like prologues in books. I was trying to write the book for a long time without any kind of introduction or prologue. I like books just to start. And I realised eventually that I had to write a, an introduction for this story because there were so many elements that were had to be explained before I could get started. The family taboo, the background, also the fact that, 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 my, mother, that was, my mother's story was mostly a personal story, but it was also a public story because she was in a small way a public figure at the time of her death. And so I, when I finally um, managed to get it, I, I wrote a three-part introduction. Um, again, trying to make it very personal. And then the other key was to realise that, to, 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 to write a book in which I showed the workings. Uh, so the, I, the, the way I tell the book is, is basically it's my story, my investigation. So, so the reader finds out things as I find them out. And I think that was what, what gave the book its momentum. Were you working on this sort of um, full time for the entire period that you were working on it, or had that initial, you know, personal article, semi-personal article in the Guardian, sort of unleashed other work, and you were sort of able to get back on track as a writer? I, I wasn't working on it full time. No, I was first. I was teaching, as I still am. I teach um, in the states, although I spend most of my time here in London. And also, I was working on this novel, Felix Culper, the one that's just come out. Uh, so I would, it, there would be times when I'd be working very hard on the, on the memoir, and then I would, when it got tough, I would might abandon it for a few months and concentrate on my my students at various points, or or go back to the novel and try and work out how to write that. Which was also, I was also trying to find a way to write it, and and it wouldn't work um, mm. until I began to make it change. A couple of things. I wanted to ask about um, the title of the of the memoir, sort of what that what significance that held for you and and what it means. Well, actually, it wasn't the title that the book was going to have for a long time. The book went through a variety of different titles, and that the, the main title I had for a long time was "The Secret House," mm-hmm. which is a line from from Antony and Cleopatra when Cleopatra, considering suicide, talks about the secret house of death. And it felt like an appropriate line because of that reference to Cleopatra and suicide, but also because I'd grown up in the secret house and a house with secrets. Uh, but then when I, when the book was bought and the, the publishers, and, and in fact my agent didn't like that title, so they said, come up with something else. And this was quite at the last minute. And, um, and I didn't really have any other ideas, but, but, uh, but in a... a prologue to a republication of her book The Captive Wife written by Anne Oakley she had used the phrase a woman on the edge of time and and I realized at that point then sort of looking at that I thought that might work and I realized it was actually the title of a famous um, feminist work of feminist science fiction by um, Marge Piercy um, American writer I don't know if you know the book called Woman on the Edge of Time and uh, so I read that book, and the book resonated for me in, in very different ways. Remember, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a work of science fiction. And I, so I suggested that as a title, um, and the publishers were happy with that, so that's where the title comes from. But I think it's a very relevant... Uh, I mean, her book was about the, the dilemma of women, mm. and, um, and this is about... this. I mean, the, 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 why it's so relevant, why, why once I'd come across that title and realised that it would work... Uh, it, it, it works so well because that's exactly what my mother was, that she was a, a very early feminist uh, in the 1960s. She wrote her book 
um, the captive wife in, in well, she it was published in 1966. She died in 1965, but she was writing it. It was her PhD thesis, so she's writing it in the early 1960s, and it was about women who the frustration of women who stayed at home with their children, and the frustration of being a woman who was educated and then when they married was expected to suddenly become a different kind of person. And and it was, a, it was other things too, and it was a historical, um, part of the book was a historical account of the situation of women in in, in Western society. And and But she'd been doing this entirely alone um, in, a, in a college that was where most of the, although it was an entirely female college, most of the teachers were men. Um, they hadn't been very supportive of her in doing this subject. And women's groups and the whole support sort of feminism and, and the women's groups didn't really start till the, the 69 and, and didn't really take off until the 1970s. And she was doing this several years earlier, uh, all on her own. So it felt to me like she had, she had realised that um, the world she lived in wasn't right. And the 60s was, was, was beginning to, you know, to, 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 to dangle things in front of women, the mm. possibility that the pill... Um, liberation was beginning to dangle the possibility of, of, of greater freedoms in front of women. And yet it wasn't really delivering, certainly not in the first half of the 60s, not until later, really, until the 1970s. So she was, she was, she, she'd left the old country, and the new country didn't mm. exist yet. So she was a woman on the edge of time. And in a way, her response was, you know, was a, a problem-solving one. Yes, that's one way of putting it. Um, her response, I mean, it, obviously there were a whole lot of different factors, as, as in any suicide. There, were, there was the, the, the social situation of women, which I think was... was I, I think the thing was that she, she had been interviewing, she interviewed 96, she'd set out to interview 100, she'd only made 96 um, women like her in their 20s mm-hmm. with young children, and all of whom had been talking about various degrees of frustration and despair. Mm-hmm. And difficulties in their lives, and then when her own life fell apart, it was it was as if sort of what did she have to fall back on? She'd been she'd spent several years talking to women about how difficult their lives were, and when her own marriage fell apart, when her an affair went wrong that she was having, that she was trying to sort of find a new way forward. Um, I think it. I think she that there was there was there wasn't much for her to fall back on. I find it interesting that at the same time that you were writing this intensely personal story you were also working on your your new novel um Felix Culper which I'm, I'm sure I have a much more eloquent way of explaining um uh the the device but to me it's sort of a, a tessellated mosaic of lines um from from different authors was that always the device that you had in mind no uh, it came relatively late in in, in the process I, I I began the novel actually before the memoir um, and I think it was a, it, it's also a detective story. Mm-hmm. It's also a story about a writer tr- investigating the mysterious death of a young person who, who they didn't know. So it, it, I think it was, an, it was, it was a, an attempt to try and get at my mother's story without doing so directly. To, a shadow to, memoir. Yeah, sort of parallel version of that story. And then it was to some degree put aside during the heart of the writing of the memoir and then when I came back to it. And I had tried to write it initially straight as I'd sort of had an idea of writing it as a sort of slightly fairy tale like story a sort mm. of parable um, but it just I just couldn't make it work I, I, I struggle to write conventional narratives I struggle to to find a way to bring life to a story written in a form that 
Jane Austen was working in. I think we live in a different world. And I struggle at times, sometimes to read, not always, but I struggle at times to read stories that are written in that way. So to me, when a story begins to break up, um, that, for me, it comes more alive. It seems to represent more the world we live in. So this story began to break up into smaller and smaller sections. And when it did so, it felt like, to me, that it came more alive. And then a secondary part of that process was that lines from other books began to appear in the narrative I was writing. I mean, I remember the first, the very first line that came to me, I was trying to write, the, the book tells of a writer who goes to work in a prison as a writer in residence. And the, the young man whose death he investigates is a, a former prisoner who was recently released from the prison. So that's the cat going out the door again. Thinking about it, it's, it's snowing and, <laughs> and, and, and not sure. Um. And, and I, I was trying to, and I had worked myself for two years as a writer in residence in a prison and I was trying to capture the the feeling of what it was like to wander the wings I had my own set of keys sitting in men's cells talking to them these were men who lost the plot lost the thread of their lives fallen through the cracks and what it was like to talk to these men day after day and to hear their stories and the lie a line from the great Gatsby um, privy to the secret griefs of wild unknown men came into my head and sort of appeared on the page and in fact that's a line about about Nick Carraway, the, the, the narrator of The Great Gatsby, um, at Harvard. So it was a very different place from the prisons that I was working in. But the line worked. Mm. And it felt that it felt there was something very um, rich to use a line like that, that I loved in my own work in a different way. And because I was writing a very, very fragmented narrative, that line was unconnected. It was it had white space all around it. So it just sat there. And I really liked that. And, and I began to look for other lines. Um, over a slow organic process at first lines would just come to me and then I realised that a lot of these lines that I was using were lines from my favourite books the books that had shaped me as a writer and I began going back to those books and looking for lines that I half remembered and then when I was doing that I'd be suddenly would see other lines so it was a sort of slow process and eventually by the end of it I was going through whole books with a red pen but it also had I mean it wasn't something I was really conscious of but I realise now that it had another very strong connection to the memoir I had, not knowing my mother at all, I'd had to construct her story out of the fragments of memories of, of I spoke to about 70 people who'd, know, who'd known her, and we were talking about a period 50, 60, 70 years earlier, so they didn't remember much, so each person would tell me maybe one thing, one small story, or one fragment, or one piece of information, and, and I also found documents as well that had small pieces of information because I, most of her papers had been thrown away. I found that one batch of letters. But mostly I was finding a line in other people's letters or a few mentions of her in other people's diaries that they dug up and shared with me. So I constructed that story out of fragments, a multiplicity of voices, the fragments of a multiplicity of voices. And it felt a very truthful way of constructing a story of someone you don't know you don't know and it's sort of what biographers do mm-hmm. so when I came to the novel and I was telling a parallel story in the novel again it began once I began to do this it began to happen it felt to me a very exciting and a very truthful way of constructing a novel and all stories I believe are constructed partly out of earlier stories and yet that's not always something that we're open and honest about, that fiction writers are open and honest about. So it became an exciting thing to, to do this as, as the, the, the lines from other books grew and took over the novel. It became a very exciting process, both reading all these wonderful books that I loved, rereading them, stealing their lines, but also embracing, celebrating the idea of influence. 
in a way that I'm not sure any novel has ever done before, to the extent that this is done. With the process of finding these perfect lines and, and slotting them in, did you find that altered the plot? Had the, the basic shape of the plot, had that always been there right from the beginning? The basic shape, yes. I knew the story. The story, I'd almost, the, it was the end of the story was almost the first thing that had come to me. So I knew where I was going with the story. I knew where it started. And I knew the basic shape of it. So part of the process of finding the lines was finding lines that told the story I, was, I had in my head. But there was also a lot of times when I would find a line that suggested some new element to the story, some new branch, some new moment, some new scene. So that was also quite an exciting process too, to, to be in kind of engaged in a, in, a, in a to and fro with these novels, a sort of conversation, a, a teaching process, back and forth with, with all these books. Are you generally someone who um, works things out pretty minutely before they start writing and, and know where you're going? Or, or, or have you sort of at, at times sort of jump right in and let the, the shape of the, the plot work itself out on the page? I'm... Um, I, I'm always wandering in the dark for a long time in the early stages of writing a book. And I think, I, I, to me, that's a, a natural process. I, I think that it's really important. And certainly for, for someone like me who's, who's, who likes to, to, to challenge genre and break form, I, I think, it's, for me, it's, it's about being open to where a book wants to take you and, and, and where a book, how a book, how a story is most effectively and most interestingly told. So I, I, when I start on a project, I have an idea about how it's going to work, but I don't have a fixed idea. When you're um, uh, reading the book, there's sort of a, a tension between the lines that are very recognisable that people will will recognise or moments they'll recognise and, and, like you say, the other story not, will kind not of... Many inform, are well, well, no, but I was going to say that how did you get that tension between the moments when um, recognising the other story will be will add a richness and then also just getting it to be a seamless flow of of a, of a new narrative you know using these these found pieces well i i made a point of trying not to use well-known lines or or do you to, to to disguise them maybe by cutting them so short so i mean obviously that line from the great gatsby is a line mm-hmm. is i think it's from the first page of the great gatsby so it's the kind of thing that lots of people would pick up and there are a few lines that are that are well known of various kinds but I'd say I would say that even an educate a well-educated literary reader would struggle to get more than a dozen or maybe even at most a couple of dozen lines out of nearly two thousand. So maybe that's not true. I don't know. You know. Well, there were just a, like you said, there were just a, a couple, um, like, yeah. you know, from Oliver Twist and and yeah. uh, where you you recognise it, but perhaps if you yeah. didn't know that was the device being used, yeah. uh, it's a bit like knowing half the magic trick and looking out for the bits that you recognise. I certainly wouldn't want people to think of the, the book as a, a game of spot mm. the line. Um, occasionally there will be lines that different people will see from different books. And, and I like that. I think that, that that's, it, it, to me, that's, there's a resonance to that. Mm-hmm. But the resonance I'm really going for is a, is a less overt one. It's the resonance of having, piecing together different voices, different tones, mm-hmm. work from different periods. Um, you know, there are lines in French, in Italian, um, in German... Uh, in Spanish, and um, lines from different periods, so with, with, with a very different kind of language they're using. And that was the challenge, was to, was to piece those together into, a, into um, if not an entirely seamless narrative, then a, a flowing narrative. And that, a, lot of that, the, the, a lot of that was about, um, I think, the music and the rhythm of the lines. Uh, and I've always been really interested in that, in, in perhaps 
in, in, a, in a quite a poetic way. Um, and so one of the methods of, 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 of making the lines work rhythmically was one of the things I did was often to start a line with a beat. Mm-hmm. So if you start a series of lines with a beat, you get a, a rhythm flowing but from line to line to line. And that helps them, I think, to, to put them together. Also to, to cut the line, cut off and cut the beginning of lines. So cut pronouns, maybe cut verbs, adjectives, start a line in the middle. Again, it helps to, um, I think, to connect lines together. So you're sort of imagining in a way that this story could be read out or that the, the rhythm of it was very important. Absolutely, yeah. And I have read it quite a lot as I've been writing. Because where, where I teach in the States, or every time I go there, there's I have all the faculty have to read and some of the students there are every night there are reading so I've read this out as I've been writing it over the years um, and I've written it read it a couple of places since and um, I, I do think I, I enjoy reading it um, and I, I do think it, it re, it's, it's a book that can be read um, aloud that's, that's, that works to be read aloud in a way almost like poetry so with the um, you know in a way you're you're narrator although he's not really narrator because it changes from first person to third person this this writer is sort of um is struggling um in 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 some ways to find his his story is that again a device that you're very consciously using at this po- at this moment when you were struggling yourself yes i mean i th- I, th- I think that's that was one of the um the impetuses for the novel that you know that I I was struggling as a writer and that I found a way out of that by investigating my mother's story and so the writer's doing the same kind of thing here but I but what was interesting was I think was was to build that into the story so and build build this build it not build into the story the the collecting of lines the collecting of fragments so the writer himself he doesn't talk about to the, to the extent that it's done in the book about about constructing a story out of lines from 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 other books, although he you know that, that that to some extent he does talk about that. He 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 talks about how he's he's lost um, the ability to to read and to write, um, except to, in in a fragmentary way. He starts keeping a notebook where he writes down fragments that he of of, of graffiti work things he overhears, and then he starts reading books. And picking lines out from them, not necessarily at first to construct a narrative, but just to find meaning, to find a way back into sort of thinking about about ideas and stories. And so, so that the the, the 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 way that the book is written is is connected in the story to the to the way that the that the character goes about investigating the story of the dead boy. I've got kind of one more question about um, about this this novel, and then I'm going to move on to kind of more the the nuts and bolts of of your life as a writer. But the question that I have um, is sort of in response to a recent article that you wrote for the Guardian, and it involves the a rather ugly word plagiarism. And you yourself talked about stealing lines, and it's clear that you have quite a lot of um, opinions on this on 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 the borrowing or, or stealing. Um, of of work and and could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, the the, the article in the Guardian in, in the when, in the print section the, the title was the borrowers. In the online section, it was in favour of plagiarism. <laughs> it was not what I was arguing in the piece. Um, although <laughs> you wouldn't know that from the comments below the the article. Uh, so I'm not in favour of plagiarism. Mm. Um, 
but I am in favour of of being more open about influence. Mm-hmm. I think you know if, if I think all art is is made to some degree out of early, of other art as well as out of the artist's own experiences um, and ideas and imagination. And I think that most other art forms are more honest about this. If you think about sampling in music, or if you think about collage in 20th century visual art of Picasso, artist theft, Picasso said. Poets, I think, are more honest about this. I was where I teach in, in the States where we do these readings. Poets are always standing up and say, This poem is for some another poet, or this poem is after a particular poem, in response to a poem, or it's whereas novelists, when they stand up, never say that kind of thing, or almost never say that kind of thing. And I think there's a cult of originality among novelists um, that I think is 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 not necessary. I think we can be more open about our influences. So that's certainly one element of 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 what drove me to write this book or, or to write this book. Um, and it's it's I think that um that I that I sorry, I, I think it's not it's not plagiarism um or, and I don't think there's a breach of copyright. Um, firstly, if you, if you're, it's not plagiarism if you if you acknowledge your your borrowings. And I list the books that I borrowed from at the end of this book. And and also, it's if if you use very short sections, again, it comes under what's called fair usage. Um, so I think I think when people talk about plagiarism, um, everybody it, it, the, the conversation becomes one extreme or another. And in fact, the, the, the what's interesting about the subject is the grey area in the middle. One of the um, things you mentioned in the article, which I'll, I'll put a link to um, in the show notes, is the recent essay, Cat Person, which you sort of noticed a possible influence. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, my daughter noticed it, actually. My daughter, Leah, who's, who's at university, in her last year at university, um, studying English, um, like most young women, um, was entranced by the story Cat Person. And she was also studying Nabokov at the time. And she noticed that um, Cat Person seemed to be a sort of feminist rewriting of Nabokov's, an early novel by Nabokov called Laughter in the Dark. And so she told me this, and I was curious. So I, I, I'd read Cat Person already by that point, so I read the novel that she was studying. It's a short novel. And it, I think there are st- strong parallels, um, and it's possible that it's coincidental. I think that seems unlikely to me. Um, but uh, the character has the same name. Both, both are about a, a woman, a young woman named Margot who meets an older man in a cinema, starts an, an affair with them. Um, and there are other parallels of details. Um, and, and I'm not saying that remotely as a criticism. I, I think it's brilliant and I think it's great fun to, to find out, to notice those kind of things. And I think, you know, I think a lot of writing is, is not just influenced by other writing, but is, is in conversation with that other writing. You know, Nabokov, obviously, is, as the author of Lolita, it's the most famous literary story of, of, of sexual abuse. And, and here, Rupenian was writing a story um, from the other side, a, a story from a woman's point of view about a, an, an unpleasant affair with a man. Um, so I think it makes it it makes it even more interesting. I think it makes it fascinating, um, and I, I'm 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 amazed that no one else has noticed um, or thought to write about that connection. So a final thing is is about like I said the, the sort of nuts and bolts of of your career. Obviously now you've you're, you've written six books, and um, you're also doing your teaching. There's been a lot of um, reporting recently about how novelists and, and writers' incomes in general have. Um, have dwindled 
over the past um, over the past sort of couple of decades. How do you make it work financially? Are you are you able to to live off the proceeds of your of your books? No, I mean I teach. My wife works. Um, our, both of our parents, all of our parents, my wife and my parents are dead. So some money came to us that way too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're fortunate. Um, but no, I, I think um, it's, it's you know writers get paid very little except for the, the top few, um, and I, I think I'd probably have made more money working um, in McDonald's, um, and the amount of time you know for, for the amount of time I, I put into both these last two books. There's also sort of um, something that's come up a lot when we've spoken to writers and also people in the publishing industry is the. Um, the desire to kind of earn out advances um, and advances in themselves are, are problematic. Do you have um, thoughts about the advance system and whether it can be gained by slowly earning out? Or well, the advantage of a, of a small advance is that you you, you can earn it out. Mm. Um, so I, I quite like having not you know i quite like having small advances because then you start you, you feel like you've uh, you've earned the right for your book quite soon i mean the, the the book about my mother it earned out its advance within a couple of weeks and so that was pretty nice and then so everything then everything it earns beyond that is is money you get um i mean i think that the thing about advances they are they they can be very important for some you know a young writer who doesn't have much money to sort of help them maybe you know if, if they get that advance before while they're writing a book maybe a non-fiction book you don't usually get an advance ahead of time for a novel so it can be very important then and if you're getting three thousand pounds that's not going to last very long um, and I think also it's the, the other important thing about advance is their commitment by a publisher so if a, you know a larger publisher who does have money um, if, if they give you a decent advance, that's a, that's a commitment. You know that they're going to publicise the book and work hard to do it. But you know, my own publisher is a smaller independent publisher, a very extremely good publisher. They don't pay large advances, but that doesn't stop them working incredibly hard and very effectively for their books. Because you you talked at the beginning about your um, you having worked with a publisher at Penguin, and, and now your your publisher is, is Scribe. Um, have you? found that you know a difference between working with sort of larger and, and smaller publishers definitely i i my books were have been published by penguin by harper collins and by simon and schuster and, and this this is the, the last two books my sixth and seventh books have been published by scribe who are originally australian they're, they're a proper literary small literary um publisher um you know i know everybody who works in the company and it's all very personal and it's it, it it it's been a hugely better experience. Uh, I've really loved almost every every aspect of it, and the books have have, have been, you know, um, got fantastic publicity, and been produced beautifully. Both of them, I think, are, are beautiful objects to look at, and they just do a, a brilliant job with um, with every aspect of the book. And I think I think the smaller publishers, to me, is the future of publishing of of the smaller independent publisher of of, of books that really matter and that count you know because the larger publishers are constantly chasing money and they're chasing what last sold and they're not thinking about what might next catch the imagination one final question um you've talked about your frustration with the kind of traditional form of the novel both as a reader and also as a writer are you 
working on a sort of on a new form or have you got an idea in mind for a new form or will it occur to you when you next start writing well i certainly to me part of i mean my justification is that that i think that um I mean, why do we write stories? If we've got something that we want to say or something we want to explore, why don't we just write an essay? And we write stories because ideas and thoughts and understanding in stories um, are, more, are more nuanced and complex. If you want to understand the world and you read a story, you get a, a more layered and nuanced um, understanding of it that comes through stories. And if that's the case, then some of the meaning of story comes not just from the content, but from the form. And if that's the case, if that's true, then it's interesting to me that most novels still are written in a form pretty similar to Jane Austen's form, and yet we live in a very, very different world. The content of, of novels have keep up on a daily basis, virtually, with, 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 with our ever-changing world, yet the form has, has the, the form of most novels has stayed the same. So to me, I'm, I'm always looking for a form in a, in a novel that will reflect um, the story I'm writing and the world I live in. And to me, we live in a much more fragmented... Information comes to us in a much more fragmented way. I, I read somewhere recently, I'm, I'm not sure it's entirely true, but it was interesting that um, in a day, um, all of us, in a, each one of us in a day, receives as much information as Shakespeare would have in a lifetime. And, and if that's the case, you know, I think that, that, that novels would do well some novels at least i mean i understand that most novels most people just want to read a nice story and they want to be carried away and they don't want a a, a novel that that makes them think too much or challenges them too much maybe in the subject matter but not in the form um but i think there's a place for novels that um push form as as much as content in terms of trying to uh, reflect and illuminate the world we live in thank you so much for your time um and for being so honest um, about your your books and the memoir in particular. Hello, it's us again with an update from our lives. Cassia, what's been going on? Well, I think first we should mention that we are recording this uh, while we're both guests at a, a wedding and we have snuck off and we're in essentially a cupboard that we've managed to find <laughs> in, in this wedding. So uh, apologies for the echoiness. Um, but yeah, that's mostly what I've been doing. I've been getting away from work and um, choosing outfits to go to a, a, a variety of tropical pool parties. Uh, cupboard slash, slash doorway could arguably be that. Uh, the other big exciting development is our crowdfunding campaign. It's now been running for just over a week and we are around 30% of the way to our first and most significant goal, which is being able to pay our producers. So many thanks to those who've contributed already. And if you would like to contribute also, you can go to patreon.com slash always take notes. And what do you receive if you contribute, Cassia? You receive a, a package of, of, of emails um, or so indeed a duo of emails um, from the two of us uh, that combine um, pitches or emails that we've sent um, to acquire agents and so on and so forth. Um, but they're a fantastic um, range of rewards, but the, the biggest reward, of course, is to help us pay um, and keep the, the podcast going. So we do hope you'll, you'll visit um, and, and help us along. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Aker. And me, Cassia Sinclair. Our producers are Ed Kiernan, uh, Olivia Krellin and Liz Davies. 
Our music is by Jess Denheiser. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And Zara Hankia looks after our social media. And we're on all manner of social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. Our website is alwaystakenotes.com. And that Patreon page for crowdfunding is patreon.com slash alwaystakenotes. Thank you very much.